Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... The Monster in My Bedroom In the early hours of January 15, 1978, Ted Bundy entered FSU's Chi Omega Sorority House through a rear door with a faulty locking mechanism. Beginning at about 2.45 a.m., he bludgeoned Margaret Bowman, 21, with a piece of oak firewood as she slept, then garroted her with a nylon stocking. He then entered the bedroom of 20-year-old Lisa Levy and beat her unconscious and strangled her. But he hadn't ended his reign of terror. In an adjoining bedroom, he attacked Kathy Kleiner, breaking her jaw and deeply lacerating her shoulder and Karen Chandler, who suffered a concussion, broken jaw, loss of teeth, and a crushed finger. Chandler and Kleiner survived the attack. Kleiner later attributed their survival to automobile headlights illuminating the interior of their room and frightening away the attacker. Kathy Kleiner has been kind enough to join us here on Murder Most Foul to tell her story of the monster in my bedroom. Um, thank you for um, allowing me to speak with you and to your audience. I appreciate it very much. I was born in Miami at the age of five. I remember looking out the window for my daddy to come home all the time. We were in a little home in Miami and I looked out because we were going to play Chinese checkers every night. And one night, two nights, three nights, I looked out and daddy never came home. And my mama mentioned and told me and sat me down that daddy was not going to come home and that life was going to be different. So this became my new normal, was just my family, my brother, my sister, my mama, and me. So um, that became normal for a while. My mother remarried and I was adopted by my stepfather who gave me his name and became the wonderful father I could have ever asked for. He was wonderful. <clears throat> at the age of 13, I was in Miami. I was at the end of sixth grade, sick all the time, just fever and no energy. I was taken to my pediatrician who said, I don't know what's wrong with her, but she's sick. I was taken to a hospital in Miami and I was there three months and what I have was systemic lupus erythematosus, which is a form of lupus that attacks your organs. And in my case, that had attacked my kidneys. They sent me home and told my parents I was in grave condition and that I probably wouldn't make it through the year. And of course, mom and dad and my family just, they didn't tell me, but they were offered by a Cuban doctor in Miami to give me experimental chemo which they jumped on and decided to do, at which point I lost all my hair, 
<clears throat> became very ill. And for my seventh grade, I was homebound. I had a teacher that came to me and um, no hair. And um, I remember I would sit there, mama, uh, about an hour away from working every day. And I would sit there and watch TV. And then I would do my homework. If I had a question or I was lonely, I remember dialing zero and talking to the operator. Hi, can you talk to me today? And sometimes they would and wouldn't, or I, if I had a math question, they would help me. So this was my seventh grade. This was a year that I didn't want to repeat. I didn't want to live like that. This was not going to be, I was not going to do this. At the end of the seventh grade, I was feeling better, and I asked mama if I could go to church, which I had not left the house in the whole year. So she said, okay, church is okay. So I got dressed with my scarf, went to church, went and had ice cream afterwards. And not two weeks later, I came home with shingles. So now I'm, I'm just a mess and I'm unhappy. And the shingles was all over my face. And this was not going to define me. I, I, I didn't want this to be what I lived through the rest of my life. So high school came, and I was well enough to go to high school. I couldn't do physical ed or any of those extraneating um, sports because of the lupus. I joined theater. As a freshman, it was, the, it was great. I met people who had no clue of my history, of my past. So they treat me like everybody else. I wasn't special and sick. <clears throat> and I found out in theater, that I could play a part and be anyone I wanted to be, except that sick little kid that was homebound in seventh grade. And that helped me understand that I didn't have to be one way. I didn't have to be sick with lupus. I could be anything at that point and anyone I wanted to be. I made the best friends in high school and it was just, it was just great. When um, I graduated high school, it was the fall of 76, I went to FSU. That was as a freshman, and it was wonderful. I had the freedom, of course, as all kids get when they go to college. So I felt, I felt normal as everyone else was um, doing the same. And I lived in a dorm. It was an all-woman dorm, and uh, Mama insisted on that. And a lot of my friends went to co-ed dorms fall of 76, I went through Rush. My parents arranged for me to move into the sorority house in the fall of 77 after summer break. So they thought it was a lot safer and I would be watched more carefully and that that was the best place they wanted me to be. So in the fall of 1977, I moved into the Cayo house. And when I think about it now, I can't imagine the angst my parents went through for putting me in the Cayo house in that fall of 77 and not knowing the events that were going to happen. But we never talked about it. I just couldn't bring it up. And, and they never brought it up to feel that pain. When you walked into the fort the front doors, which opened up two beautiful doors. There was the foyer, and there were a bank, uh, set of beautiful wooden staircase straight in front of you. 
On the left was the um, living room, the formal living room, and behind that was the dining room. On the left side was a little uh, kind of a room where we got our mail and took messages. And then you walked around the corner and there was a long hallway. That was the first floor uh, set of bedrooms. And there must have been maybe eight rooms down that hallway, uh, uh, four on one side and four on the other. When you walked at the end of that hallway was the back door that led to the back parking lot through the rec room. So you have that first floor, and then you also have the bedrooms on one side and the living and dining room on the right side. When you went around the corner, there was our rec room, which was a huge, big, beautiful room with a huge, big fireplace and sofas and pillows and a door that led to the back parking lot. If you went up the stairs in the front of the foyer, went up those beautiful stairs, on the left hallway was a bank of rooms. Again, there must have been 10 rooms on that side, five on each side for the girls. If you turn to the right, there was another hallway, and that's the hallway that I lived on. My room was the second door on the left. My room faced the back parking lot. I loved that room. Uh, my roommate and I set it up and we had, I had my beautiful white and green bedspread and it was great. It was a nice room. But each room was, was decorated by obviously the, um, the girls that lived there. And there were two girls in each room. When you look to the back wall, it was a bank of windows. It was so light and so bright. We looked over the parking lot, but it didn't matter. We were on the second floor, and it was, you know, we saw nature. We saw trees. So the bank of windows, we always had open because our curtains were wide open. We hung plants on the hangers, on the curtain rods. So we had our macrame planters and our different, you know, planters hanging with beautiful plants in them. Between my, my bed and Karen's bed, my roommate, there was about maybe eight feet. In the middle, between our beds, each on the each side of the wall, we had a little trunk, like a footlocker, they call now. It's about three feet by four feet. It was just a small locker. And we had that between our beds. We put my glasses and plants and books on it. So that was the layout of the room. Next to my room was Margaret. Bowman. She was the first room, and then my next to her. And across the hall was Lisa Levy's room. In my room, I remember it was late at night. Karen and I studied and then went to bed around 12.30, went to sleep in our beds. And I remember hearing a noise, just enough to wake me up a little bit. It was, it was just um, enough to stir me. And what it was was the door opening and swissing across the carpet. Next thing I heard, and it's black in there because it's night, and I'm just not even really opening my eyes, I hear a a, a crash, a louder noise. And what that was, was someone had walked into our room, our dark room, and had stumbled 
over that little trunk that was between our beds. Now this woke me up enough to focus a little bit and to open my eyes. And as I'm looking, all I see is this black mass or this black figure of something. I couldn't tell what it was. And my eyes are focusing now a little better in the light. The next thing I remember seeing was this person standing there and raising his right arm up over his head and slamming it down on my face, <clears throat> excuse me, with such force that it broke my jaw, it shattered it, it ripped my cheek open. You could see the inside of my mouth. My tongue was almost bitten off. I got lacerations on my shoulder. And it didn't hurt at first. It felt more like a thud, like just a bang on my face. And I think at that point, I uh, passed out. My roommate started stirring because she heard the noise louder. She woke up and seeing this person next to her put her hands up over her face to block the blow that she knew was going to be coming at her. So he um, also hit her with, with what he had in his hand, which ended up being a piece of firewood. Now, he had picked up the firewood. When he came in the back door of the sorority house, and that back door was right next to the rec room, he watched the sorority. He knew the comings and goings of the sorority. He also knew by watching the girls come home at night and entering that back door that it didn't lock. We had a combination on that lock, and it, had, uh, it broke. And it had been broken for a couple of days. And he just turned the knob. He picked up a piece of log firewood that we had right by that back door we used in our fireplace. He picked up that log and went up the back stairway, which is right next to the rec room. Went up those stairs and turned down and went down that first hallway. And he walked down that hallway to the very end he turned the corner. The first room he came to was Margaret Bowman's room. He attacked and killed Margaret. He went across the hall, attacked and killed Lisa Levy. After he beat me, I am laying there and I'm waking up and I'm cringing and I made myself into the smallest little ball I could and I'm holding my face and now it hurt. That dull blow now turned into needles and knives and my face was just hurting so bad and I'm cringed into my little ball waiting for the next blow and all of a sudden there was a light that shone up in our room. It was a bright light. And as I'm cringing and looking, I can see this figure just kind of antsy moving around. The next thing, he ran out the door. And as I'm looking, that light was actually a car light driving into the back parking lot. And the light shone up into our bedroom because our curtains were open with plants hanging. So 
he ran out and I'm scared and I'm ready for him to come back and I'm screaming and I'm yelling for help and you know someone come and all I was doing was making gurgling sounds because my jaw was so badly shattered and my mouth was cut open and my tongue I just was gurgling and in my head I was screaming for help my roommate walked out into the hallway and one of the sorority sisters saw her turned her around and walked her back into our room they turned on the light and then they saw where I had been attacked and how bad and that's when they called 911 and I'm still waiting in this little ball for this guy to come and now kill my sorority sisters and come and kill me and all these thoughts in my head and i passed out again so as i'm laying there screaming in my bed and all bloody my um sorority sisters called 911 and the police came and i remember seeing the policeman in my room at the head of my bed and trying to talk to me and I couldn't respond because I was so uh, I couldn't talk or anything and just seeing the police officer standing right next to me not knowing anything that happened it gave me a, a feeling of peace that this person wasn't going to come back now because a police officer was there in front of me and as he came in and saw us the other police officers were gathering the other sisters that were in their rooms in the other parts of the house so they put them all in one bedroom and they were scared and not knowing what was happening they then went into margaret's room opened the door and she was laying in her bed which was the room next to mine and she had the curtain the sheets drawn up to her <clears throat> excuse me to her neck so it looked like she was sleeping they opened the room across the hall, which was Lisa Levy's room, and they saw that she had been attacked and she was bitten and beaten very severely and strangled. <clears throat> when they did finish going into Lisa's room and they went back into Margaret's, they pulled the sheets down and saw that she had also been beaten and strangled. He had done those two rooms just before he came in my room and the thought of him having attacked and killed two of my sorority sisters and still on a rampage i mean even now i can't fathom that um it just it doesn't make any sense so the police now were at my bed and the paramedics came and they were taking care of me and they noticed <clears throat> that they had i had bark pieces of wood in my face and they also noticed that margaret margaret bowman and lisa always also had wood on their face and on their floor and that's how they knew whomever this person was had picked up a piece of firewood from outside our back door so now this kind of put it together that it was someone one person that was doing all this and attacking with the piece of wood after the paramedics were tending to me and they took me down this beautiful wooden staircase that was right out through the double doors to the front street 
as they're carrying me, it was in the 15th of January. It was so cold outside. It was three in the morning and I was shivering and they had this sheet on me. And as I'm laying on the gurney and looking up, I see like five or six heads looking down at me. And I remember thinking, what, what are they looking at? I didn't comprehend what was happening, where I was going. I was numb at this point. I was just scared and numb. And as they walked me toward the ambulance, I saw these bright lights. It was the ambulance and the police car and the fire engines and the squawking of their radios and talking. And I was, I was at a carnival. My mind had taken me somewhere where I felt safe and I wasn't scared. And all this noise was a carnival. When they took me into the emergency room at the hospital, they, they didn't know the full extent of my injuries. But the whole time there was a police officer right at my head. And I just remember that piece. I didn't know anything, but I felt safe. They, um, they took care of my injuries as best they could and they took me to the OR. At which point the doctors actually wired my mouth shut because it was broken and shattered in so many pieces, they just wired it shut. And they tried to uh, close the hole in my cheek, which was uh, about the size of a quarter. And it looked on the inside of my mouth and my teeth, which were shattered. And so they closed that the best they could. And when I woke up next, I was in my own bedroom in the hospital, and there was a police guard at my door. Again, no one knew who had done this. They didn't know if he was coming back or what was going to happen. I could have been there for weeks or a year. I have no idea how long I stayed in that room. In order to answer or try to answer the detectives, detectives questions, who did this, what do you remember, they hypnotized me. During that time, I remember talking and saying what I remembered, I couldn't remember. I remembered in my head that I heard him walk in the door, trip over the little trunk, and attack me. And because of this memory that was brought back to me by hypnosis, I am able now to understand the story and be able to put to words what I went through. And over the years, I've been able to add pieces to that puzzle that helps clarify my thoughts on to what happened that night. Well, when I left the hospital, I was taken to an airplane to fly me back to Miami. Just before that, the police officers took me back to the Cayo house. They wanted me to go upstairs and see my bedroom to see if there was anything missing. And I walked up those staircases. It wasn't so pretty anymore. And the police officer took each, each elbow and walked me one step at a time up to my room. And when I entered my room, I saw dust, fingerprint dust everywhere. And I looked down my dresser and I couldn't see if anything was missing. And I looked down the wall and I saw my bed. And it was, it was a mess. There was blood on the wall. And my beautiful bedspread that I had picked out in December 
was all brown and covered in blood. And to me, this was a good thing because I physically saw what happened to me that night. I physically put that in my head as something I didn't have to make up and think about. It was, it was real, and that's what happened. I understand that after he attacked my roommate and I, and he ran out of the house because of that bright light, he didn't know if I saw him, if anyone had seen him. And that's why he, he just scooted out and, and squirmed and ran. He did run down to uh, a couple of blocks and there was a duplex there. And he broke the screen to the kitchen and went in and attacked Cheryl that same night, a couple hours after he killed Margaret and Lisa and attacked us. When um, Bundy went to Tallahassee after leaving um, and escaped from jail out west, he lived in a little um, small apartment and he did steal uh, credit cards from the different men around around Tallahassee. So he did have those. But after the attack, Ted Bundy, whom we did not know at this point who he was, after he left Tallahassee, he went down to Lake City in Florida and attacked Kimberly Leach, a little 12-year-old girl. He killed her and then decided it was time to leave the state of Florida. He had stolen a, a VW bug on his way out the state, which went through Pensacola. He had been driving erratically and a policeman stopped him, pulled him over just because of driving. When he did pull him over, Bundy was like, not knowing who he was still, like, you don't know who, who you have. And Bundy started running. The police officer then arrested him and took him into the police station. He, they asked, who are you? He wouldn't tell. They went through his pockets, found the credit cards of several guys. Still wouldn't tell. It was a day or so before they actually got his identity through fingerprints that were taken from out west. And at that time in 78, the police departments weren't talking to each other in different states. So um, the West called Tallahassee and said, you know, this guy sounds a little familiar. And that's when they did their research and discovered they had Ted Bundy in Tallahassee. He was incarcerated and we were so thankful. We were lucky to have Ken Casares, who was the sheriff in Tallahassee at that time. And he was, he was very good at what he did. And one thing he knew is Bundy was not gonna escape from Tallahassee. He was not gonna break out of jail. And he was very cautious with him and um, did a lot of things that kept him in, in the jails. But one thing that did help identify it was Ted Bundy was when he attacked Lisa Levy, he, he bit her. He bit her in her buttocks. And that left teeth imprints. And it happened to be that Ken Casares had most of his life, and as a um, professional, had studied teeth imprints and understood how they could be used to, uh, for identification. So all this was occurring. And um, 
they knew it was Bundy. They then tied it into Bundy at the attack at Cayo. So that's how it was put together. And that, that's how they found out that Ted Bundy was in the Cayo and Ted Bundy had attacked us. The trial for Ted Bundy was in Miami, Florida. I actually lived in Miami at that point. Um, the trial was held in the beginning, I believe, of June of 1979. There were, oh, there were, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, um, police and around my house protecting us during this time. And there were um, reporters all over the place. It was now, King Casares called us and said, you are going to be a witness and this is how it's going to come down. And um, so that's that at that point, I knew that I had to prepare myself for the trial. I didn't go to any, any of the trial uh, days. I, um, you know, I just didn't want to. My parents didn't want to. A lot of my friends went there. And also, Ann Rule was sitting in the uh, jury in the, um, in the gallery when Ted was um, on trial. I didn't know her di then, but after reading her book, The Stranger Beside Me, I did get to be friends with her over the years. So the day that I was to testify, I was to go to the, <clears throat> excuse me, I was to go to the courthouse and my parents and I walked up and there were just everywhere reporters. And um, we walked into the front doors of the courthouse. They took me up to the third floor and took me into a, um, a conference room. And this room were um, a bunch of people that were gonna testify. Actually, there was the uh, uh, EMS guys there, uh, some of the nurses from the hospital and some of the other, the police were there. And I remember walking in and as soon as I saw the guys, it was just like we ran into each other's arms. And it just, just as you can imagine, it was, it was a, good, a good reunion. And um, we were talking and everything. And before I know it, it's my turn to go in to the courtroom and do give my testimony. They took me out of the conference room and the bailiff walked me into a little room that was right behind when you go into a courtroom at the very back where the judge seats sits, there's a little door. And that little door goes into a little room. And I stood there and waited until it was my turn to testify. Now I remember just in my head, just trying to be calm and go through everything. So they opened the door for me to go into the courtroom and I'm standing there and I'm trying to get a look at everything because I was scared and I wanted to know where things were. And right to my right was the jury. And they were all sitting there with notepads and looking at me. And that kind of freaked me out a little bit, but my eyes then wandered and I saw the prosecution table and I saw the district attorney and the lawyers whom I had met. The gallery was full. I mean, it was just like every seat was taken. And then my eyes turned and I saw the defense table and sitting there was Ted Bundy with his lawyers. He was not asking questions. He was just sitting there. And he had his hand in his chin and his elbow on the table, like he always sits, staring at me. And when I saw him, I stared back until the defense asked me some, I'm sorry, the prosecution asked me some questions and kind of brought my senses back. 
And I have no idea what they asked me to this day. And I have no idea what I remembered answering. I was sitting there looking at Ted Bundy in the face. And I remember I wasn't scared, but I was thinking, you're on that side of the table now. I have the control. I'm sitting here telling my story of what you did. And my eyes never, never left. The defense came, stood up in front of me, and asked me, do I remember that night? And I told them. And then they said, is this the man you saw attack you that night in Chi Omega? The night of the attack, I never saw his face. I never, I never heard him speak. I, I, it was just a black silhouette the whole time. And I looked at Ted Bundy, and I started crying excuse me. And I had to say, I don't know if this is the man that attacked me that night. And it hurt me so bad to have to say that because I wanted to help to put him away. I, I wanted to be part of the group of strong women and men that were going to decide him to be guilty. And even to this day, it hurts that I couldn't help put him away. But I had to answer, and I said I didn't know. I was then released and turned around and went back to my little room. And I sat there, and I almost threw up. I was just so tense and so relieved that it was over. I was just like, oh, my God. So then they walked me out of there, that little room, and back into the conference room where my parents were, and we left the building. And I remember um, being hungry and everything. So we went out to lunch after that process. And then I believe we went home. But such a weight was lifted off my shoulders that this was done. And yet I was so sad that I couldn't identify him and put him away. There are countless books written about Ted Bundy, but the books are just the tip of the folk hero iceberg that is Ted Bundy. This Bundy binge, as the killer's own defense attorney called it, comes in the form of movies, documentaries, t-shirts, greeting cards, fan clubs, rap songs, bumper stickers, coffee mugs, and socks. The New York Times called him Kennedy-esque. Bundy proposed to and married his then-girlfriend, Carol Boone, in the courtroom during his Florida trial. Over the courtroom gasps and the prosecutor's objection, the judge declared the marriage legitimate. He was aided in this stunt by author Stephen Michaud, who interviewed Bundy in prison and wrote Conversations with a Killer. In an interview, Michaud admitted to arranging the courtroom stunt. I went to a men's store and bought Ted a pair of khakis, a bow tie, and some argyle socks so he could look spiffy, Michaud said. He also went as far as securing wedding rings for Bundy and Boone from none other than Tiffany and Company. Some years later, Michaud cashed in with another book entitled The Only Living Witness, 
Some believe the title a slap in the face to the countless living victims of Ted Bundy's monstrous acts of violence. Each of Ted Bundy's victims dealt with their ordeals in their own way. Kathy had a rather unique approach to dealing with the aftermath of the monster in her bedroom. When I was taking back to Miami to recuperate from my injuries and my jaw was wired shut again, I had, I had a, felt like a dark, a dark mask on top of me just was like something black just holding on to me. And I didn't want to live like that. I didn't want to have this part of me. So I had a goal, something I wanted to reach in my life that I could see with my mind's eye. And it was a little island. And I felt that if I could reach that island, I would be, I would be safe from that, that thing. And it turned out that it took me a long time to get to that island. I took baby steps and it took me weeks and weeks. But as I took baby steps forward, I looked behind me and that black thing was a couple baby steps behind me. And as I walked slowly to my little island, it was one sandy island with one palm tree and one little sand chair sitting on it. And by the time I reached that, and put my toes in the sand and looked up, that black thing was gone. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it anymore. And I felt like I had, I had lift myself above what had happened and that I was, I was gonna be okay. I wasn't gonna have this thing around my neck or in my life anymore, it was gone. But one thing that I did feel uncomfortable with beside that was kind of men. I was kind of not really scared, but kind of not thinking good about just men I didn't know were all of them going to come and attack me. And I knew I had to get over that. I wanted to get over that. So as soon as my jaw was unwired and I could talk, I went to work at a lumber yard in Miami. And I figured I wanted to see as many men as I could, as quickly as I could, in order to overcome my fear of men. So I only worked there a couple weeks, and I decided that I didn't need that anymore. I had gotten over the feeling that every guy was going to attack me. And I also found out that a lot of cute construction workers out there go to lumber yards. So that helped me heal over that point that I was afraid of was, was the fact that men could have hurt me again. And I knew that they wouldn't going to. When um, I decided that I could live and, and not be afraid of men, I ended up getting married in June of 78, which was six months after um, the, the attack. And I had known my husband for maybe a year and from some uh, 77 and 76, I met him. And so um, I got married and my parents and, and his parents thought I needed to be taken care of. So, you know, no one would attack me again. And the marriage ended in divorce a couple years later. Um, I think whomever I would have married at that point would have ended in divorce because it was so totally reasons beyond my control of why, why I got married. 
One thing that um, also with lupus, they tell you is not to have children. That is one of the restrictions that because uh, lupus could be um, activated again with with childbirth. So I decided um, we decided to have a baby, my ex and I. And Mikey was two years old when I got divorced. Um, it was it was a, a, a difficult time for me, but I did have my baby. I had Mikey and he was healthy and I was healthy and um, things were gonna be good. I got um, divorced and for six years I was a single parent and um, just dealt with those circumstances as any person who is a single parent goes through. So um, that, was, that was something I had to get over as well. I was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 32 years old. I had no history of it in the family, but um, my husband, I remarried, and my husband Scott and I wanted to have a baby, and that's when they found the tumor in my breast. So um, it was breast cancer. I had a radical mastectomy and um, went through a hard stage reconstruction, but I had to go through chemo again. And I thought in my head, no, God, please, not chemo again. It had been such a horrible, horrible memory. But I had to. I had to go through chemo. I had nine months of chemo I was going to take. And I'd have my treatment. And then I'd say, I have one more chemo to take. And my husband would be like, no, you have eight more chemos. I said, no, I have one. And when I get through that one, I have one more chemo to take. Because in my mind, if I thought I had to go through this eight more months, I just, I didn't think I could do it. So I broke it down into one chemo at a time. And that allowed me to get through those nine months and make it through. And I had a great support system with my husband and now my son. And it was, um, it was okay. I was going to make it through that. And I did. I finished my treatment for chemo, and about a year later, my husband and I wanted to have a baby, so I got pregnant, and two months into the pregnancy, I had a miscarriage, and so many women who go through this process and this ordeal and this, this angst, it, it molds them, I think, into what they're going to be and how they will handle things. And about nine months later, I got pregnant again and had another miscarriage in my third trimester. And I told my husband, I can't do this anymore. And I knew I could be okay for anything. I could get myself through anything. But I couldn't help the baby. I couldn't help this little baby be strong enough and use my strength to keep going. And to me, that was, that was my hell that I had to live with. And um, it just, it was overwhelming. So we stopped having the baby, trying to have the baby. And um, we ended up buying a sailboat. And by purchasing the sailboat, it opened up a new chapter in our lives. And I called the sailboat Sally. I didn't, but it was it was one of the best things that I had done to help move on in life. So even to this day, my husband and I have a 35-foot sailboat, and we love sailing. 
And since then, I've also gotten into motorcycle riding. So I have a 900cc bike, and my husband has a Harley. And um, we embarrass my son every time we go out and visit because Mama's in leather. But, you know, he loves it also. So I'm very happy, and life's good. And, you know, I keep, I used to say I keep running for the next hurdle because you never know what's you know, God's going to put in front of you and you have to be there. And now that I'm older, I go, you got to walk really, really fast <laughs> and look around the hurdle because there's always going to be something good back there. Bundy died in the Florida electric chair at 7.16 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on January 24th, 1989. Hundreds of revelers sang, danced, and set off fireworks in a pasture across from the prison as the execution was carried out. Kathy Kleiner and her husband Scott marked the passing of Ted Bundy quietly in their own living room. So about 10 years after all that happened, and it was time for Bundy to actually bend to be killed, I got a, a call around midnight from um, the state attorney and he said, okay, no more stays of execution. This is going to happen, and it's going to happen this morning. So around 6 in the morning, my husband and I were sitting in my living room in a little condo I had, and we sat there, and we watched the TV, and the state attorney called and said, okay, he's been electrocuted. He's dead now. And that call came to us before it was recognized on the television. And I remember my husband holding on to my shoulders, and I cried, and I cried, and I wailed, and I cried for all the women. I couldn't only think of them, of all the women that Bundy had killed and taken away from us, from this world, from their families, so soon than they should have been. And I cried for them. And I cried for Margaret and for Lisa, that they didn't have 10 years extra and stays and that they were killed and taken away from this world. And I don't think I cried for myself because I knew I was okay. I knew I was going to be, be good. I was going to be okay. So I composed myself and I looked at my husband. I said, I'm hungry. Let's go to breakfast. I have not been in touch with any of the other victims' families. Um, I've wanted to over the years. Um, and then I thought about, you know, it's been years. I've, I've gone over it. I've gotten myself through it. And I wanted to talk to them. And then I, I thought, well, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? And if I go up to them and, and talk to them, and they see me in a good spot, and I mention how, well, I'm sorry. Everyone... I would think their families, it happened yesterday. It didn't happen 10 years ago or 20. It, to bring it up to them would have brought back a memory that just happened yesterday when their daughters or family was taken away from them. And I didn't feel that it was worth it enough for me to say things and feel good about myself, to talk to them, to, to cause them that angst. So I just, I never contacted anyone through the years and um, I have not been approached by anyone I would definitely talk if anyone wanted to reach out but 
that's how I felt about it. I just didn't want to hurt him again by bringing up those raw memories. I want to thank Kathy Kleiner from the bottom of my heart for spending some time with us today on Murder Most Foul to tell her story. She is working on a book right now, which does not have a title yet, but if you search her on the internet, keep an eye on her. The book should be out soon. When I talk and tell my story, I want, I want victims or people who feel like they're going through terrible or hard things to know that they can get through things they can they can manage and not have to hide in a box or in a little room and not talk about it because each one of us has a strength inside of them and it's 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 your strength and once you pull it out and you depend on it to take your baby steps or to move forward that strength's yours and no one can take it away from you and, and use it because it'll help you. If you think you can't do something, just hold your strength and let it help you, help you move on because no one should have to not be comfortable in how they're living and afraid to live because they don't want to get out and, and be out in the open. But to me, it heals me so much to know that physically and mentally i can i can push through it might take me a while it's taken those baby steps but i know i can get to a better place and i just want to thank you jim again for inviting me to speak with you and your audience and um i hope i hope that um they can get something from it and just by hearing my story i appreciate it thank you I asked Kathy what music she listened to in college before the attack that changed her life. She told me she loved James Taylor. Here's a bit of Fire and Rain for Kathy. Won't you look down upon me, Jesus? You gotta help me make a stand. You just got to see me through another day. My body's aching and my time is at hand I won't make it any other way Whoa, I've seen fire and I've seen rain I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend but I always thought that I'd see you again.